Hello, and welcome to What Will We Watch, the podcast, where we revisit our favorite childhood movies for the first time as adults. On this episode, we're discussing George Lucas's follow-up to Star Wars, uh, set in Tolkien's Middle Earth. We are discussing 1998's, nope, 1988's Willow. Play the trailer. It was a different time. It was a time of destiny. A time when a child could tip the balance between good and evil. A time for an unlikely hero named Willow. Tell her I'm not gonna let anything happen to the baby. We gotta give that baby to somebody. I'm somebody. A time of scoundrels. You're a great warrior and a swordsman. And you're ten times bigger than I am, stupid! A time when unearthly powers raged and good men risked their lives. From the creator of Star Wars and the director of Cocoon, Willow. Fraser, we got to rush through this one because I don't think it's going to stay quiet for very long. Yeah, I think you might be right. I think we might have to just speed through it. It'll be one of those mini episodes. The actual <laughs> episode we did before will be the full episode. We have a lot to get to in this episode, too. I do. Uh, joining me on this episode, <laughs> Fraser McLean coming back from uh, his disc. Oh, hey, this is actually kind of special. This is our one year anniversary episode. Oh, is it? Fraser McLean returning. Uh, I wanted to have you on for this episode specifically because you were our first guest. Um, oh, jeez, I didn't were... get you anything. Oh, jeez, oh, caught me off guard. I mean, you got me this great uh, this great guest right here. Um, you were here for our uh, inaugural Page Master episode, which mm. is what a doozy. You came back for The Adventures of Pluto Nash. Oh. A little weirder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, here you are today. With 1988's Willow? Mm-hmm. Big question mark. Do you Are you only friends with me because my name's Will? <laughs> or do you only love this movie because you knew you'd have a friend? Uh, actually, your name's Willem? No. Don't tell the audience that, <laughs> it's man. It's on air. It, it, now it's we, here. Straight facts. We can't call it in Vil we watch. <laughs> what Vil we watch. I mean, you could, but... Yeah, it would be... But Vil you? Only, only, only the German fans would get it. Only the uh, people from Deutschland. Um, all right. Uh, Fraser, you're a great filmmaker. You're one of my favorite guests. You're one of my favorite people to talk to. We've been friends for a very long time, so thank you for being my guest on this episode. Oh, well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. It's always fun to talk about movies. And thanks for, you know, being here for the whole year. It was awesome. Uh, what is your uh, Willow episode? Like, what is your general memory of Willow? Why did you choose Willow? So... I, with this movie, I had sort of three scenes that probably stuck out to me really finitely mm-hmm. uh, when I wanted to rewatch this. Um, the first one is when uh, the main character, right at the top, Willow Ufgood, finds a Dakinian baby. Yeah. Um, and his first reaction is to just push it back down the river. And the only reason he doesn't do that is because he's distracted and his kids pull it out of the river so i i love this scene in particular because you give the character intro as sort of the opposite of what you would normally do yeah and this is someone who you know sees something that obviously needs to be addressed but just doesn't want to deal with it and then gets sort of 
pushed like it it gets pushed onto him and then he just has to sort of just just deal with the hand that's been dealt yeah so that scene has always stuck out for me um and then the next two is madame mortigan in the cage yeah convincing them to let him out and just remembering as a child thinking that like nothing he says is you can trust no. like, as soon as the madman's out of the cage the madman's out of the cage mm-hmm. and then the last scene which has stuck with me for definitely since the first time i watched it is having all of the protagonists all their forces rally up around the main castle and the main sorceress just laugh and turn them all into pigs. Yeah, that's a pretty sick move. And have none of, like, oh, it just doesn't matter. It just shows you the power disparity that this kingdom is being ruled, is being under. ruled under. It's just this woman who can just turn all of her uh, adverse, or so all of her uh, adversaries? adversaries into pigs just in the flick of her wrist. And everything yeah. else is just, it's just pointless. It really shows how, uh, how much of an uphill battle these people have. What do you think, as a kid, like, what, what made you connect with it? Like, was there something that... Because I, I know you, you you like a lot of sword and sorcery mm, movies. I love fantasy. What do you think... What about that connected with you? I know, I know your dad likes to make a lot of, like, these kinds of, uh, like... I don't want to say weapons, but, mm. like, bows. Yeah. And you are really dad into is a knife forging. Maker and, yeah. yeah. Totally. Um, I think probably what drew me to this is the limited number of fantasy. Yeah. Um... And this fantasy isn't the classic. This fantasy is it's dark fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's for a family, but it's not kids' fantasy. If anything, this is a darker story that's been not watered down, but sort of tempered down so that kids can palette it, rather than the other way around, which we normally see is a pretty basic story that has a few elements for adults. This is a movie that... I think as a kid, I've, I've always enjoyed sort of like darker stuff or higher con- more higher concept things. So for them to lean into the darkness of fantasy yeah. rather than for it to be sort of like, like so often in fantasy, you'll see things where like even the Lord of the Rings, the general overtone is pretty jolly. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty like hobbits dancing together and drinking. It's pretty like jovial and jolly. Yeah. It's like epic instead of sinister. Mm-hmm. And in this, the world is... The character's just trying to survive. He's just trying to get through it. It's not like he's working to save this thing they already have. He's just doing all this work because it's just simply the right thing to do. You know, it's funny. Uh, you ran a D&D campaign that I, that I was a player in. And you describing the world of Willow, not we are playing a, post- a post-apocalyptic one, but the way that you like to play D&D is very similar with low stakes, but like, high consequence realism mm-hmm. survival mm-hmm. is very baked into the worlds you like to play with in D&D. Oh, absolutely. I wonder, oh, that's a definite influence. I think part of it is so often we'll see worlds like Star Wars where they introduce this epic world and it's all this great thing. And that's the story we're in. We're in the like penultimate good of the evil where a story like Willow is like, here's this amazing world. And we're just walking down it with a baby. We're going slow. We're, you know, it's just everyday we're things. Diapers. Yeah, it's it's just sort of like the run of the mill, but the run of the mill is different. And yeah. like, I really like when I can be sold on like the believability of fantasy. Mm. And like Lord of the Rings, for example, is like one of you know, the best fantasies ever created. And you can put yourself in that world, but I can see Willow as a r- more real world. Interesting. You know, Lord of the Rings is sort of like the fairy tale that be told about the world. It's a lot messier. Yeah, it's a lot dirtier. I think we can probably get into this later, but just the magic compared to 
fantasy like compared to terry goodwin or good i forget what, what his last name is but just like narnia and lord of the rings and kind of a lot of the middle earth stuff it's the the magic has like less rules like everything's a little dirtier mm-hmm. um, and that's kind more of the chaotic. big thing yeah that's kind of the big thing about star wars was like it was more relatable with fantasy because everything was dirty mm-hmm. and kind of more lived in uh which was the kind of bigger uh george lucas property property to you was it star wars or was it willow it was definitely star wars okay but that was I'd say probably mainly because everyone's seen Star Wars. Yeah. I can talk to I can talk about Star Wars with everybody, you know? Yeah. Everyone has an opinion. If you want to go to theaters and see it, it's there. There's always another Star Wars. If, you know, if there was one Star Wars, it would be different. Yeah. You know, this this is a one-off that had checkered reviews when it came out and most people now haven't seen it. Like I've Very true. I've been watching this movie, I've been asking like all my roommates and everyone else that I have contact with if, if they've seen this movie. And literally no one has. Just your boy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I um this movie came to me when I first moved to uh to Cortez, that little island. Mm-hmm. Um I was about five years old. Uh parents just divorced and I moved to this strange new land. Um and I remember we were living in a renovated sheep's barn. Mm-hmm. Uh and <laughs> There's literally like sheep hoof prints in the concrete. Uh, and I hated it. I was so sad. I was so miserable. And the running theme in my life, which was uh, whenever I was in these times, same with like The Princess Bride, there would be a movie which would come and it would comfort me. Mm. And it was like a way and it truly solidified how I escape through movies because the the farmers who own that land that we were living on, their daughters invited us over for a movie night. Hmm. And my one memory of Willow is not of the movie. I just remember sitting in, like, wrapped up in a sheep's skin, <laughs> like like a, like a pelt. <laughs> yeah. Um, sitting in, like, this big, ancient, like, German-built wood house. Um and watching willow and it was almost like the world of willow i was in and it was such an immersive experience i don't remember really anything about this movie i remember that i loved willow i identified with him i remember the brownies a little bit i didn't remember them at all they were a surprise i just remember there was two characters who made me laugh a lot Hmm. um and then i remember val kilmer as just kind of like a cool guy um and that's it and so when you said, let's do it, I was like, I mean, that's perfect. That's, yeah, that's, right. that's the deep psychological trips that we're going on on, on, on this podcast. And it's, it's funny because, like, if we, you know, we sort of mentioned the other movies I've brought to the table on this before. It's like Page Master and The Adventures of Pluto Nash and now Willow. And all those movies I remembered with reverence. And there's ones like The Page Master, I feel like it almost it was better than when I was a kid. Yeah. And movies like Pluto Nash... You only remember four or five things about it, and it was horrible. So when I came back to this movie, I was kind of worried. I was like, is this going to be a page master? Is this going to be a Nash? Like, where is this going to fall? The ultimate choice. (laughs) The the, the ultimate test. (laughs) I also want to point out, all three of those movies were not hits. I know. And all three of those movies are not big movies in pop culture. Like, 
and I have to point this out about your kind of taste and reverence for movies is not a lot of them are well known. Like a lot of them are kind of like the ones which went into the into the the discount bin in the video store. Like yeah. the ones which weren't rented, so you rented them. <laughs> exactly. It was the three for fives I was yeah. getting. See, and I just feel like everyone has seen these. So I'll bust into and like these monologues about these movies and people are like, what? Like Willow had such an effect on me and now realizing that none of my roommates have seen it is like, I'm going to make them watch it. Yeah. Um, all right. You want to go a little into the, we got to jump yeah, through we gotta, this, bro. We got to get popping. Um, want to jump into the context? Let's do it. All right. So George Lucas. Height of his power at this point. This was... Okay, I'm going to just jump in my opinion on this context. Let's okay. do it, baby. I think this is an Arturo movie, but from a producer's point of view. All right, so I have this down as a point that you brought up, and I wanted to just have you talk about it for a bit. So A classic Arturo movie is something that is a key creative, usually the director, working with a team of people that they've worked with in previous movies, knowing the position or the role that they would be good in, and hand-selecting them to do that role, and also having a clear vision from that one person who then makes sure it comes to fruition throughout. Yeah. He wrote seven copies of the script. He didn't direct this, but he literally put every piece in place to get this done. He, From what I've seen, he was such a hands-on producer that I would argue that this is more his movie than the director's. Yeah, and also, like the auteur theory, the credit is solemnly given or solely given to that one person as the author mm-hmm. when it's not they're not tarantino's not the author wes anderson isn't the author like that's his production de- like wes anderson's look is the production designer's look mm-hmm. but it all goes to the auteur and george lucas gets basically sole credit for this movie yeah no one mentions ron howard when they talk about this this like movie no if anything they just mention it as this was an actor trying out being a director and also all of star wars gets george lucas no one knows that like irving kirshner directed the like third star wars Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i think it's irving kirshner i'll be really proud of myself it's just really interesting to like what other people you could you argue that are arturos that aren't straight directors jerry bruckheimer I think you can point to Jerry Bruckheimer movies and be like, that is a definitely a lightning train movie. Interesting. The Brook. That's a babbling Brook right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So, yeah, uh, I do like that theory. And I would highly agree with you that George Lucas, known as a film director, has only made a few and only a very few successful films. Um, but as a creative brain has birthed, Galaxy. Galaxies, like yeah. universes he he he's created and he is a way more successful and way more artistically successful uh producer mm-hmm. or like executive or producer. Showrunner yeah. Or, yeah. No, by I, getting his fingers in there. I agree. I think um where Lucas needs to shine is not being the director. I think he's someone who he could choose someone who'd be a better director for the project than himself. And he did. And he did, right? It's that's the thing. Like this is Actually, this movie gave me a lot more respect for George Lucas. Yeah. This is someone who realized that, like, there's this thing I really want to pull off, and I know all these people who can do these pieces better than me, so I'm just going to put them into the position to do what I want them to do. It's really cool. So the director's Ron Howard. Uh, he just came off Cocoon, which was a uh, friend of the show, Matty Schmidt's, fav- one of his favorite movies. Oh, interesting. Um, and the screenwriter is a guy called Bob Dolman, who uh, met Ron Howard while working on another movie, that 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 he wrote and he was mostly a tv writer and then he 
got he wrote kind of two TV movies and got given Willow or pitched Willow and wrote Willow. Um, but I didn't know that George Lucas wrote seven drafts. Um, they did together on the ranch. They did with the writer, uh, Ron Howard. Yeah. Or sorry, yeah, Ron Howard. They uh, they all went to Skywalker Ranch, oh, which man. again leads into our tour thing. They filmed a lot of things at his personal property, yeah. in places and locations he already knew. Um, but in that in that period, they all did a draft together. And then Ron Howard did seven drafts. Wow. And or then, or, Ron Howard no, sorry, or Bob, the, Bob Dolman? Bob Dolman did seven drafts. And then Ron Howard and George Lucas uh, would go through those drafts. That makes sense. And then select. But so, like, do you think those drafts for them... Oh, okay, we'll talk about this later. But do you think yeah. those drafts was them like pulling away from Lord of the Rings? Okay, so here's the thing. Um, this kind of all starts with George Lucas deciding to be like an executive producer. Star Wars was such like a exhausting thing for him. Um, and you know what? I, I, I just realized I kind of took shit away from him by saying he's only directed a few like successful movies. He did American Graffiti. Yeah, that, he, that, that, he has some stuff. That but... gets him any any points for the rest of the time, um, let alone Star Wars. Yeah, fair. But he, he was so drained by Star Wars that he stepped back. I think he had some like heart problems and they were like, hey, maybe you should have some rest. So he um, he set up like a slate of movies, and he wanted them to be like well-known mythological uh, situations for young people. Um, so he wanted to start like six or seven franchises, all in all in different worlds and genres. And it all kind of started when he first tried to um, option The Hobbit in mm-hmm. 1972. And he was unsuccessful optioning it, so he kind of took that 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 bit of inspiration, got in a room at Skywalker with Bob Dolman and uh, and Ron, Ron, Howard. Ron Ron Howard, and they I guess they did seven drafts, and just kind of kept changing the story. Uh, I guess they they originally named the type, the project Munchkins mm-hmm. that got changed. Yeah, which is a good change. Yeah, and then uh, so yeah they then they kind of settled on this weird plot centering around like a baby and i guess they heavily based it on uh the hero's journey again because it's very similar to star wars uh the overall plot the fact that there's like a MacGuffin to bring down the bad guy and then a lot of the characters are very similar mm-hmm. um yeah the movie had a kind of hard time being funded because there wasn't a lot of projects like it mm-hmm. like no one really wanted to invest in sword and sorcery fantasy then and i would argue now is considered not a safe bet I'd argue now. I, the, I've been Googling good fantasy movies because you wanted me to recommend one in the last while. Yeah. I haven't found a good fantasy movie in the, that's been released in the last few years. N- not good, but uh, I would say in 2016 to about 2019, there was, there was a huge influx of fantasy. We're talking like <laughs> not successful, but we're talking properties that people really tried to do. They had... Um, they had uh, Warcraft. Yeah, World of Warcraft. Egyptian gods. Yeah, all calls, all the, all the hobbits. Um, <laughs> bright, <laughs> uh, but there was like an influx of like, let's try to make, let's see if if the superhero wave is going down, let's try to pick up a fantasy wave off of it. But and it didn't fully work. But that's that's kind of you know, almost panders into my point. Like fantasy. Yes isn't really you know there, there's an odd fantasy movie that will do amazing and aside from that they're usually pretty bad well there's the new D movie 
coming out too. So so I I would say again, I'm not saying they're good. I'm just no, saying it is easier to get a fantasy movie made now. Yeah, easier, but it's still a risk. It's not a western. It's not an action. Like I think as a Hollywood, it's it's more of a risk. They're expensive. I think I think people would lean easier towards doing a fantasy film than a western now. I disagree. I feel like you know with say. Um, Quentin Tarantino was probably way easier for him to get his westerns funded than it would be for him to get a fantasy funded. I would argue that. I'd think it'd be easier for a someone who wasn't a massively known filmmaker, say Martin Scorsese, who also has a western coming out, or Tarantino. They can get whatever they want made. Mm. It's it's you know movies that don't have a a, a a green light director or name attached who have easier times game made who are fantasies. It's just fantasies are seems to be on average a lot more expensive than maybe no maybe it might be in the same bracket as like sci-fi but they're a lot yes. more expensive than most genres yes i just feel like i'm always a fantasy lover and i don't get many of them no and usually they're not very good i, I would agree with that <laughs> i i'd agree there is a there is a sad amount of good acceptable fantasy movies out there like thank god one of the best trilogies ever made is set in Tolkien's universe Mm -hmm. like thank god Mm because that would be depressing well that's the other thing is if Lord of the Rings didn't exist I bet you we would see even less fantasy you know like it really a lot of things are done now that it could be a Lord of the Rings or it could be the beginning of Game of Thrones sort of that's where they're going for yeah but there's so few good fantasies that they're that they're literally lightning rod names we all know what they could be like because there's so few of them well you do need that like that IP to to well right now you need an IP for anything but I would also agree with, uh, yeah, they all are attached to larger movies. And I think that's one or thing that properties. kind of hurt this story is because, you know, probably the, mo- the most famous fantasy content ever made is probably Tolkien's Lord of the Rings yeah. or Slash the Hobbit. But I'm just putting them together. So at the time when this came out, most people had read Lord of the Rings. It was in the zeitgeist. People knew that was sort of what they defined fantasy as. So if you're having something that's coming out as one of the largest fantasy things of the year or the years around it, it's going to be like compared one-to-one to sort of the largest fantasy thing ever, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. And when there's so many um, parallel lines, I think it really sort of hurt this movie. And I think that's one of the reasons we're not seeing as big of a sort of following around this movie. I'd also say the expectations for it to be Star Wars was huge. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. again, in 1988, Star Wars was like, you know, okay, it, it was like... It had just kind of finished, and there were still kids who loved Star Wars. Like it was kind of before it went into its its dark era of mm. no one wanting to talk to talk about it, which is hard to think of now. Yeah, I know, right? But at that point, fantasy was a way bigger dork genre than sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Like no no cool person was like you want to play D and D. Like mm. no cool people. It was all like metalheads, people who. <laughs> Who, who wanted to invoke Satan <laughs> um, and or just people who enjoyed high fantasy, like hard to get into fantasy. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the big gate of fantasy was that the worlds were so hard to penetrate. And Willow offers a little more of a welcoming world because you don't have to worry about like politics like you don't have to worry like the inter-realm politics you don't have to worry about like the sage who has to teach you the strict rules of magic like the magic in this movie we don't know the rules are there rules like Like... no it's way more like arcana like chaotic arcana 
that you're like a sorcerer, like hoping you don't roll a nat one is that's like way more what it is, is that like it's coming from within you almost like an id. Um, Ooh, that's a good way of putting it. Rather than like what Tolkien is, where it's it's very difficult. Um, you have to like be a practitioner. Mm-hmm. All the magic in Tolkien's world are sort of represented from these characters of wisdom, like the elf that's yeah. been around for a thousand of years. That's like the leader of his society or like, you know, this Gandalf, like the sort of like ageless sage. And yeah. In all that world, magic is this thing that's like the most powerful thing in the world and is only harnessed by the people who are the most important and sort of like the top of their, I don't want to say like social hierarchies, but they are. Yeah. And in this movie, it's the opposite almost. It feels like magic is sort of everywhere and it's something that anyone can really tap into it. Yeah, like anyone can try to tame it and try to like wrestle with it, but they might just like horribly backfire. Like every time uh, Willow casts a spell in this movie, the audience is thinking like, is this going to work? Yeah. What's going to happen when it screws up? Like, this is really dangerous. Like, magic isn't one of those things where it's like, oh, well, he could have just used magic to get out of this. Like, why didn't he just do X? Yeah. The whole way through, it's just this person, like... It's funny. There is... I Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask you this. Do you think the magic in this movie is purposefully raw and unchecked and... and what would appear to be undeveloped as rules in a screenplay or is it just underdeveloped no i think it's in, it's intentionally chaotic um i think we can see that because they're turning like i'm so sorry to interrupt you but a good point of saying that you could say there's no rules and that's underdeveloped is that they turn rocks into living creatures like the rules of transfiguration in normal magic it's so weird that we're talking about a made-up thing like this. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, there's a lot of noise around us right now. Oh yeah. But uh, they turn, like, they turn a rock into a bird twice, which is you can't do that in like most rules of magic. I I think they they uh, having magic be a chaotic force is something and something that they didn't really need to have to explain the nuances of was a calculated choice. And I think we can see that, especially when Willow uh, attacks the troll uh, with his wand. And he turns it eventually into this big two-headed fire-breathing dragon monster. But before that, the monster changes three or four times. It, the troll like shrivels up into a ball and then his skin wraps around itself. And you, you can just see that this wasn't something that Willow tried to do. Willow just sort of actually I'm going to pull what you did he just sort of activated his inner id and channeled it through the wand and that's just what came out yeah I, I don't think it's it, this the magic in this movie sort of made me think of uh, the movie The Thing where yes. it's just like at any moment this could just sort of pop off the rails and like what you're going for might not work at all and like it's very Cronenberg-y too very like Cronenberg-y. just the effects are like oh did they get like the same dude who did those effects and I don't think it's Tom Savini but yeah like it 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 seems it seems like that. Um, uh, just to harp back to funding, because was where we started this. Oh tension. yeah, let's let's go back. Um, I thought it was really interesting that to get this movie made, George Lucas basically had to give away the theatrical release and the uh, the theatrical release and the uh, the distribution. The rights? American distribution. Yeah. Not really. Th- yeah. And he only kept European distribution and merchandise. 
Oh, and he, I was thinking that's that's that, his style, right? He keeps, Lucas's he keeps style. merchandise. He kept yeah. all of merchandise for Star Wars, gave away most of the other screening. And I just thought it was really interesting that as a business plan, George Lucas's whole sort of like money making scheme is the merchandise. So do you think he's he's making these big merchandise deals sort of not before, but he has to have those lined up if he's not going to take the distribution rights i imagine so uh there was like i think i highlighted this in merchandise spotlight but there was like all these games Mm. of willow and Mm. there is even suppose it's supposed to be really fun like a willow board game that's kind of like DD, but not um and so yeah there was like a huge merchandise surge for this it just we can go into the release uh it wasn't a huge success it wasn't a flop. No, it wasn't. And I think it's remembered as a flop. And it really isn't. Yeah. So it came out May uh, 20th, 1988. Um, man, my brother Elvis was born <laughs> almost two weeks after this movie came out. I wonder if my mom brought him in there. Or if this movie induced labor for my mom. <laughs> um, she saw the baby on screen. It's like, I want one of those. <laughs> Get it out of me. Um, so it was made with a budget of 35 mil. Hmm. I think it looks terrific for that budget. I agree, especially because it's high fantasy with... Uh, visual effects that they literally designed for the film. Yeah, it earned uh, 137.6 worldwide. See, that's not a flop at it's all. It's not. It's not all. But I think it was more of a critical, a critical, uh, I think people, I think Star Wars heard it. Yeah, I, okay, I think Star Wars and Lord of the Rings heard it because I was reading some uh, some critic reviews to the trailer when it came out Yeah. in the 80s. And in, like, Reacting, reacting to the trailer, some critics are, critics are already calling it like a watered-down Lord of the Rings. And yeah. I think this movie, like what really hurt this movie is everyone was comparing it one-to-one with Lord of the Rings the whole way through. And, like, it's not. Yeah. But, like, I can understand why like, we're comparing it, and I can understand why the comparisons are there. I couldn't help compare it to those two, to those two prop- properties mm-hmm. when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, it also beat a other Lucasfilm, which came out I believe uh, two years before Howard the Duck, which we covered on this podcast as well, which only made thirty six million. I still haven't seen that. Is it worth watching? No. Okay. Listen, to listen to the episode, Fraser. Yeah, I will. <laughs> um, it, uh, but it had a strong life on uh, home video, where it kind of grew to a cult fandom. Hmm. Um. All right. Uh, oh, this is a kind of an interesting thing, which I think sums up how I feel about this movie, and where it sums up about. It's a good, it's, it's, it came from the, uh, Mike Clark, who is a film critic for the U.S. today. And I think that this quote kind of sums up the legacy of Willow pretty well. The film is probably too much for young children and possibly too much of the same for cynics. Mm. But any six to 13 year old who sees this as maybe, uh, sorry. But any 6- to 13-year-old who sees this may be bitten by the movie bug for life. And, I mean, I think you're evidence of that. Yeah, I think so. I think him saying that it might be too adult for kids is... it's per- like, He might be right, but it was perfect for me when I saw it as a kid. Yeah. Um, I was I was into the, the darker, grittier fantasy world. Um, and it does feel... I, you might, I might get a little backlash for this, but it feels a little too derivative for my taste. Uh, just period? Or like from Lord of the Rings? I mean from this movie. Yeah, uh, people mow their lawn a lot around where I live. 
I mean, but we're in a nice backyard, so <laughs> at least we have that. Um, it just feels, you know, there's the Gulliver Travels references. There is, like, there's so much from other shit mm-hmm. built into this movie mm-hmm. um, that I get why it was, why, you know, for cynics, and especially at the time, if it came out, people would be like, huh, it's just a rehash. And I can I can hear that point, but my biggest counterpoint is... This is a children's movie. Yes. This is, it's fine to play through some tropes. It's, it's not. I don't want to say encouraged, but it's expected. Yes. It's this is a this is a children's movie. Yeah. Like we, you know, watching it now, I can get the nod towards Gulliver's Travels, and like you can get all the through lines for Lord of the Rings. But at the time, I didn't know those properties. No. They were. It was all new to me, and it's it's not done in a way where it's a blatant ripoff. I would say, if anything, it's just constant homages to what the fantasy genre is without really adding too much new yeah um all right should we hop into uh scenes that we like now as an adult yes let's do that all right so i got right off the bat the prophecy yeah i want to talk about this so the prophecy uh the movie starts out with there's been a prophecy foretelling the coming of a newborn who will bring down the empire and the evil queen, Bavmorda, uh, and uh, and she will uh, she'll take down the queen, who lords over the kingdom with an iron fist and twisted magic. Mm-hmm. I really like this setup. The idea of her getting all pregnant women, yeah, and, like keeping them as this weird sort of like power structure, and as soon as they're born, they can, like, go back off, but every child is being checked. Yeah. And uh, I just think, like, this movie starts out in the belly of a, uh, in the belly of of a castle. Mm-hmm. You got in some great iron work going on. <laughs> some great medieval bars. Um, and I just, I saw that and I was like, great. I think I'm going to be in for a fun trip because of the production design and just kind of the overall way this movie's approaching fantasy. Um. Yeah, I just really love that. I also love how in this story, the baby is called a princess throughout. Not a princess. No, in actuality, she's a random baby born to a slave. Yeah. And both the mother and the wet nurse have to sacrifice themselves in order for this baby to get out. But she's just a princess because she's the princess of prophecy. Yeah. And I really, I really like that. It's one of those things where this movie leans into the tropes of like classic princess, sort of classic, um, maybe like. Um, what would be kind of like, uh, oh, sorry, I'm trying to think of the right word. Do you mean like a fairy tale or a like, um, well, this movie will have things that like the baby has sort of a bit of like a holistic sense or a bit of, oh, a, yes. you know, things keep bumping back into each other. There's things where you're like, oh, but that only really makes sense. Like in a story or like, that's like a, a plot device. Of yes. Mad Mordigan keep bumping into Willow and the baby. Like how could that possibly There's be? There's some fate intertwined. But they lean into that. Like this movie knows its tropes and is leaning into it. Like it's almost as if the baby is making this stuff happen. Mm. That's why like I, I can give this movie a lot of leeway because it knows that it's playing with tropes and it leans into it. And sure it can be a bit campy sometimes, but I'm okay with it. It's a kid's movie. Yeah, that's something I always have to wrestle with. I think there's to a point you can... I don't know if George Lucas intended this to be for kids. I think he was imagining, again, like a bigger franchise. Um, 
And when you see Star Wars, Star Wars doesn't have those problems. And and that's I think I think that might be it. We just weren't aware of it when we watched that. And so you like, of course, it follows all these same things. But I feel like there was a little bit of thing of him being like, this formula worked. Let's take this formula, put it in to this. So but I do agree. And I agree that's why people hate every Star Wars movie that comes out is because it's not a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. Or it is a kid's movie, but they're not a kid's. Mm-hmm. And that's why mm-hmm. they hate it. And, and I, they're not the audience and it's not for them. Yeah. It's like, well. And that's the biggest thing. So I, I would also, I would have to give that to you too. Um, but the next thing I want to talk about is just Willow as a character. Great His character. intro scene, it's nice because this happens right after. Um, but uh, you're right. The baby like floats down, gets to him very Moses. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. We're referencing all over the place, Fraser. Um, this movie kind of feels like it's doing that. It's it's just flipping through the reference book and using what it wants scene for scene. Yeah. And, you know, it does it. It, it has good curations. But if you look deeper in every scene, you can see the reference. Yes. And uh, I do. I don't know. I, I, can, I can see where filmmakers are like, hey, guy, not, not everything needs to be a reference. Um, but we do... Uh, I just think Willow is a really interesting character and how you said that he kind of the movie only starts because he gets distracted and his kids save the baby instead of him. And then he comes back and his wife also finds it. and He's like, no, no, we can't keep it. And she's like, no, no. And just goes back inside. (laughs) What do you think? Does that hurt? Like it's a very, you know, every hero has to deny the call. Yeah, again, a lot of people who No, I do, mean, I like, think this is the neighbor. You think it's the same guy? Yeah. I think he just moved from over. So we have this one neighbor who starts all of his yard work when we're podcasting. And we we were quiet for like 20 minutes before this, and he went away. And we think I think it's the same guy. I think he might be right. Um, I think we've got, just got to talk through yeah, it. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, this was why we said we were on a time crunch. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the short fuse of an... Old rich white man. Oh, gosh, <laughs> the shortest fuse. The of shortest all. fuse. Oh, there's <laughs> chatter in my backyard. <laughs> um, so yeah, do you think this kind of like this? This is like way over the top of a hero denying the call to action. Do you, but like, do you think that is a? Do you think it makes Willow like an overall more likable character, or someone who you're like, come on, I? It's a little unbelievable. I I actually think that overall it does make him a more likable character yeah. because it's not just the one time. It's He wants to give it away when his kids find it. doesn't work. He wants to give it away when his wife finds it. doesn't work. He wants to not bring it to the council of all the Nelwyn. doesn't work. He wants to leave it with the council of Nelwyn. doesn't work. He gets nominated to take it with him. This whole way through, this is like, it's the everyman story. Like, the everyman doesn't want to go on a huge quest. He wants yeah. to stay at home and just do his basic stuff. So to get the sort of the everyman character out into the world, he needs to be pushed there. Yeah. And the moment of us watching him realize the situation he's found himself in and then have to take it into his own hands is way more powerful having him be kicked and screamed to that moment. And do you think that is when they're at the crossroads, when they've been given the mission of, like, give it to any daikini that you meet? Mm-hmm. And then the first daikini they meet is... A madman in a um, crow's cage? Uh, Val Kilmer in a crow's cage being called Mad Mad Mardigan. Mm-hmm. And all the other characters, all the other Nelwyn characters that have 
been shown to be maybe people of honor or like higher members in the community. You see how morally bankrupt they all are and how scared they all are when they just want to get rid of it. Not do the right thing, just do the easy thing. Yeah. And this is when this character, this is when he, he wins us over. Because he's the everyman. He's the one who, you know, he doesn't really, he's not really a badass. He doesn't really want to do all these things. But he makes the right moral calls whenever they need to be made, no matter how hard they are. If the right moral call for him is to stay in a place where he's terrified of, to deal with a baby he doesn't want to deal with, and maybe work with a madman that might kill him, he's just going to do that because he knows it's the right thing to do. And if he were to just leave the baby, he couldn't live with himself. Yeah. And that's that's one of the reasons I love this story so much is because the character, he's not the sword-wielding badass. He's not the one who's doing it for the right reasons. He's someone who's just doing the right thing because no one else is there to do it. Yeah, I would say he is doing that. That's very true. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I would say he's doing it for the right reasons, but I understand what you mean. Right, like you know, he he he's not doing it because like I want to be rewarded. I want to be a good member of yeah. society and honor. Is just like literally no one else is gonna hold this baby. I have to like I'm holding this baby. I can't give it to anyone I trust. Yeah, that's a really fantastic scene. What do you think about Warwick Davis's acting in this? He's seventeen. Seventeen. And I mean, he's like. He's, I think he's giving one of the better performances. The other one I would give to Warwick Davis's wife in this movie, I believe her name is Julia Peters. Mm, that's a good one. And they have a really sweet marriage. And I think she might be giving one of the better performances in this movie. Yeah. Um, I was I was there for Warwick Davis's acting. I can understand why. I can understand why George Lucas saw him and was like, you are my lead. Like, he, yeah. this movie was basically kind of made around Warwick Davis. Uh-huh. And, uh, we're jumping ahead here, but the remake, Warwick Davis is going to be reprising his role. So he's yes. done it so well that in the remake, like 40 years later or whatnot, he's doing it still. Yeah, I kept being like, okay, when, like, he's 17, 17. like, when when is that going to show? And when he's acting with his kids, the scenes where you think it would show the most... He comes across as a really empathetic father Mm -hmm. and just like a guy who just he's the perfect everyman. And I really think he's great. On the other side of things, I want to talk to you about Val Kilmer is mad Mardigan. What are you thinking of his performance? We meet him in that birdcage. It looks like he just ate a bunch of Oreos. Uh, His (laughs) his teeth are so damn dirty. He's got a mullet going on, like the world's largest mullet. Um what are you thinking of Val Kilmer's performance? Because I think it might be bad. Okay. And I don't know if that's Ron uh, Howard's fault or if that's Val Kilmer's fault. I love Val Kilmer as an actor. Yeah, Val Kilmer is, is he sort of does it or he doesn't in movies. Um, I think the character of Mad Mortigan is a great one. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it could have, the movie would have been better received had they had someone who maybe had a little bit more range or depth that could have played Madden Morgan rather than Val Kilmer. Because Val Kilmer, Val Kilmer played this character as a sort of a, a one-beat role. And throughout. pretty cartoonish. Yeah. The the swordsman who's the best swordsman in the realm but can never hold on to a sword. Yeah. And it's it's a good role. I mean, that sounds like a great character description. I love that. It is, but there, it's not Aragorn. He doesn't suddenly have the change where he realizes he needs to... You know, he needs to do all the things that he's good at, but in a way that is like accept- accepted by society or in a way that works with everybody else. Yeah. It doesn't happen. He just continues to play himself as that one sort of note. That's true. And all he, the way through. He also, this, you know, this movie's filled with 
broad performances. I think he might be doing the broadest mm. of like, and I don't know if that comes back on him or if that comes back on Ron Howard. Um, but I also think we talk a lot about half measures and I feel like they, the screenplay committed to a more, um, morally corrupt character mm. for Mad Mardigan. Mm. Totally. And then through screenings, they were like, oh my God, we have him selling out Willow like throughout the movie. They give away the baby, like he gives away the baby. He sells him out to the army who's looking for him that they were like, okay. And they went back and they added these lines in in like ADR where Mad Mardigan didn't, didn't give the, like didn't ditch the baby. It was stolen by the brownies. Doesn't make a lot of sense. It it does because the brownies are actively looking for this child. Um, Yeah, but I I I know what you mean. And then and then when he like leads the guys to to them by the beach, there's an ADR line of like being like, "See, I told you we'd find them without your help." And you're like, "Okay, all all these lines are off screen, I'm sure." And so I I I think that's one of the things that kind of dampens his his arc and their commitment to him as like the outlaw who then gains a conscious and that's, conscience. That's the thing. He's called Mad Mortigan. He needs to be more insane. I'm Okay, this movie, I loved how George Lucas names characters because obviously, you know, in writing class, we both learned that, like, Luke Skywalker, Skywalker, he's got his head in the, in, in the clouds. Han Solo, he's a loner. <laughs> um, I, this movie goes over the top with over it, where Willow's name is of good. Um, and then Mad Mortigan... One name, not separate. No. Not a nickname. No. Not like his name's like Madison Mardigan. It's just Mad Mardigan. I fucking love how much Willow says it. That's one of my favorite comical parts in this movie is when he's just like, Mad Mardigan. <laughs> and did you uh, learn about how George Lucas named a bunch of the villains after critics? Yes. So uh, <laughs> the the we, we'll get to it, but the, the massive dragon that they encounter. The two-headed dragon. Is like... Uh, it's called Eskisk, and um, and that's named after Siskel and Ebert. And then Pauline Kael, a film critic who I love, who is <laughs> such an influential film critic of 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 the seventies, and apparently not a great person. Um, <laughs> she uh, she or she just really liked holding her power. Um, but they named General Kale after Pauline Kale. I love that. that. That's really cute. Yeah, I like that too as a little nod. Um, so I did want to talk to you about a little bit about um, Mad Mardigan's backstory. This is also something that was in the screenplay and doesn't come out in the movie. But like, you don't really fully understand his backstory. What do you think it is? I like to think about it as he's someone who is sort of trying to like live by the beat of his own drum. Yeah. And he would probably, you know, have been in the army and there's that other guy he meets, uh, that's sort of his, his, uh, counterpart, his army counterpart. Ark. No, what's that guy's name? A I R K. Is it literally, is that guy's name is just Ark? Yeah. Eric. Eric. (laughs) You know, Eric. (laughs) Eric. It's Eric, but spelled stupid. Spelled stupid. Well, when he's with Eric, I feel like he's, he basically, you know, Eric is a version of him yeah. if he just did whatever he was told. Um, and Mad Mardigan, like, I think the beat we need is him leading all those troops 
in the way where he's like both like true to himself as a madman but also can do it because he has been sort of forged in war mm-hmm. and you know he has to had to have like a point to rise up but no i this is the thing with mad martigan i really think they let it down they don't they don't give you enough of a backstory for you to properly speculate on it yeah and they don't really give you enough of an extra like an outro on him for you to really know where he's at either he's just sort of this this unchanged foil character that exists through the story and has a moment of triumph and needs it but he doesn't go through change yeah i would highly agree with that and i think that they kind of went through and decreased his his development mm-hmm. um, or like how much you learn about his character apparently in the screenplay there is just like this whole storyline about um a kingdom called galadorn which i believe you see at the ending and is is the kingdom where where the where the dragon is where everyone is turned to stone so that's where mad martigan is from and like he was a knight and he fought alongside uh, that like army with with like Eric, mm. but his madman, his just his 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 madman recklessness, got them into s- 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 so much trouble. So like, it seems like there was a cool relationship behind them, and you kind of get hints of it, mm-hmm. but they they cut it out. Yeah, and it just felt and like that, that kind of hurt his his character. Right, he feels like one of the, like the main characters, and yeah. he doesn't really have a main character arc. No. You know. And they it, want to do Han Solo. You can tell mm, they're going mm. so hard for the lovable out, 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 outlaw, but it's not like he's he's either not charismatic enough or they're not giving him enough time. I think you're right with half measures. He's yeah. not Madman enough. He's not not Madman enough. You know what I mean? Like if you're gonna call him Mad Morgan, he has to. He's got to be bad. He's gonna be, he's gonna be mad. He's gonna be crazy. Yeah. You got to have him like, I don't know, chewing tinfoil or something. <laughs> that black root. But um, oh, dude, I want to talk to you about that. Okay. <laughs> but w- real quick, I got two things about Mad Morgan. Yes. Something that I found out after watching this, which I actually thought was kind of cooler than Mad Morgan as a character, Val Kilmer and Joanne uh, Wally. Yeah. Whaley got married after a meeting on set. Oh. And they were there's like the love interest and for Mad Morgan's character. Yeah. Um, so and she plays that was cool. She plays the evil queen's daughter who gets new turns. Yeah, I have it written down here. Um, Sorsha. Sorsha. Yeah, Joanna Whaley. Whaley. I thought that was really cool. That I is always, really sweet. I always like when like love interest sort of characters just actually get married. It's just yeah. one of those like funny things that like you know because we work in movies, you know how fake all love interests and all love things are in in content yeah so when you hear about this afterwards it's like i always think it's kind of like a little bit of like a fairy tale story and it's better than like hearing that they hated each other <laughs> yes <laughs> um okay one more thing that i think you might get behind yeah apparently for mad mortigan the person that they originally were trying to go for and go after to play him yeah. was john cusack could john cusack play the mad mortigan role the way we need it to be i saw that okay i love John Cusack a little even more than I love Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this. He's so good in Say Anything. I think he could have done the, like, innocent. Uh, not innocent, but, like, the the lover arc, archetype who will, like, who's just, like, like he's, he's, he's a madman. He'll do anything for love. Um, but then also the, like, depraved kind of more, like, sociopathness mm-hmm. that we see in gross point blank yes 
And in gross, he kind of plays a little bit of Mad Marnik in Gross Point Blank. After I saw this, I was like, this that might have been better casting. He would have been, I really believe. And he can also be like, that kid looks like the kid who couldn't be a knight. Like, the knight who can't be a knight. Mm, mm. That's what he looks like. Um, Yeah, what do you think about his relationship with uh, Sorsha and just kind of Sorsha's character overall? Sorsha is queen... Um, this is the thing about fantasy movies. I can never remember all the characters' names. Queen Bavmorda. Bavmorda. Um, her daughter. Yeah. What do you think about kind of her character and their relationship? I didn't like one big thing about it. Because she's like out there hunting for them. Sorry, I just had to give some context. Yeah, I'm into her hunting for them. I like her character. I like her change. I have one thing that really cheapens the whole thing is uh, Mad Mordigan is infected by fairy dust that basically makes him goo-goo-eyed off the top. Yeah. And that's what sparks the whole... Love interest. Yeah. And it just feels really weird because it's like, you know, after that, he's, you know, he has the conversations with her where he's just like, I don't know what came over me, but we all know because we're the audience, that's magic. So this whole thing that's going forward is like kind of lie. You know, it's just I would much more have preferred that Mad... Like, because for me, it's a more of a believable beat for him to actually get enthralled in her beauty he's been in a cage for how god knows how long he's a madman i mean it's like a lot of first beautiful woman he's seen in like in how long like a lot of us coming out of quarantine (laughs) we've been in cages we're (laughs) madmen but but i just thought that it was like i didn't need the drug aspect the pixie dust doesn't come back later on there's There's no fruition with it it's just that felt like it cheapened the whole change in the whole arc for her aside from that i really liked the character of sort of the the evil henchman slash character that the big bad guy holds so close that they don't think could be betrayed and eventually is kind of what brings to their downfall. Yeah. But I thought they cheapened the whole thing by making it pixie dust. I would highly agree with that. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that's been added for comic relief mm. and where you're like, wait, I like, we don't need, I mean, I'm fine with that scene. I feel like he was, I feel like they were kind of attracted to each other before, but then they're like that, that that animosity is like schoolyard mm-hmm. animosity mm-hmm. that scene i you know i said I, I i i don't mind i take that back i really that scene slows the fucking movie down for me um and it also like I, their whole character arc doesn't really work i thought they maybe have knew each other before but then when they first meet each other it's like oh no they've never met each other and again that's the place we easily could have had mad morgan's backstory as well it's like yeah. oh yeah he was part of this army with these people before because and she's from that town right it's her, just it's, so yeah there's a deleted scene where her dad so marduvmar the evil queen i'm just gonna call her that Bavmorda. marduvmanar okay so that's so good to write that down that's, that's our next D D yeah. name um so the evil queen like wrecked uh th- that town or th- that uh that kingdom and turned them all to stone so in that in that dragon scene at one point she's like fighting and then she finds the stone statue of her father and he, she can hear him going help me and so that's why she switches alliances and i was like that makes way sure it's more romantic that she switches for for Val Kilmer, but it's not motivated. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was like, okay, like that's way better that I wish they had that scene. Cause it just would have made more sense for her character turn. Um, totally. Yeah. Want to talk a little bit about, uh, 
Finn Raziel. <laughs> Dude, the names in this movie. The names in this movie are just something else. So Willow uh, finds the witch who he's supposed to be looking for. Actually, the baby holistically brings them to the witch, and the witch and the baby have, like, apparently a communication, and that's where you find out the baby's name, and you find out that she is basically a sentient, like... I don't want to say being, but she's definitely not functioning at a normal baby's level. <laughs> this yeah. is the holistic thing. I was going to have to pop it in. Most babies can't. Can't summon, can't like, s- mages and talk to them through your brain. This is my thing, because I kept being like, what's up with this baby? Like, the baby doesn't bring down the fall of the queen at all, besides, like, being the catalyst for Willow to bring down. Like, the baby's not doing anything. I get your point. Now, the baby is the thing that brings it all together. Right? The baby is the thing that keeps pulling Mad Mortigan towards Willow Uffgrift and keeps bringing these these yeah. pieces together. And, like, all these pieces are like, how is this mage that's, like, a possum going to possibly do anything? Yeah. And then slowly this sort of, like, ragtag group comes together and they all have their moment in the sun. I love the running joke of Willow having to turn the the witch who's who's the possum back into her human form Mm -hmm. but then never having enough confidence in himself and changing her into worse and worse animals i love it it's beauty because it's a joke but it's also good character progression Mm -hmm. and we can see that with defined changes by how she looks yeah you know and then there's also like again some more holistic things like when he fails the first time turns into her turns her into a bird the only way she's able to get away and refine them is because she's a bird so there's always, like, whenever something sort of, like, messes up, there's usually positive outcome from it. That's a great point. I feel like uh, I want to rewatch this movie maybe with you. Because hmm. I don't think I got <laughs> as much away from... I, I don't think I took as much away from this movie as you did. I think, you, like, the importance with this movie is to... Like, in Lord of the Rings, I'm going back to comparing this to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But Lord of the Rings... You can't help it. You can't help it. The Ring is such a character. Yeah, it's always and whenever it's in a scene, it's the focus of the scene. It's always like, and it has all those catchphrases, and and <laughs> and, and, and you know, whenever it enters a room and it goes, bom, 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 bom. it's such a character. <laughs> You're right. But, <laughs> You're right. But there's like there's a presence. Like you 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 always sort of think about the ring as like a thing. Yeah. Um, sorry, you made me lose my except thought because I was laughing. Except when it did that, that stand up bit when it said. <laughs> All those problematic words on stage. Oh God! <laughs> we, we 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 really lost a comedic hero when the when the ring did that. <laughs> but you think about the baby with having as much sway on the story as the ring, and not just being a thing to be carried from one to the other. Like it's the thing that's sort of directing the group. Yes, I think it changes how the story is. Or at least it changed how I've used the story a fair amount. Because rather than like a lot of random chance or this and that or things that you can be like, what, they just happen to do that? You can gonna get even like better justification of like, oh, of course the baby needed, you know, of course he, the baby needed to be changed because he needed to go in and find Mad Mortigan. I'm all about retconning stuff and like using where it just as like out of uh, pure like need for things to make sense but not wanting to tarnish your belief in in, in the story mm-hmm. making sense of things and like desperately pulling at threads i like that that actually makes a lot of sense and again i might be doing that and just making this better movie in my own head but i'm into it it works i, I like having thinking about the baby as like you know the source of power yeah and so then, no i won't jump forward till then we should keep going through scenes we like oh just my like i my other favorite scene is 
when Willow finally transforms, he finally gets the the, the this power of self belief. Um, <laughs> Just like uh, if we're gonna go back and make some comparisons in uh, uh, Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim oh, yeah. versus the World, when yeah. he fails the first time and he realizes that what he needs to do is have the power of self respect. You just need to believe in yourself. And he befriends his his evil, yeah, his like evil twin. I, I also love, love that. that Me too. Like, that's yeah. one of the best. That's one of the funniest. <laughs> he's actually a pretty cool guy. And you're yeah. like, yeah. Um, but it's the same thing. He he just does the same things he was doing in the beginning, just yeah. with respect and just with self respect about it. He, he all he does to take down the queen, as you said before, is the MacGuffin. Is the same thing we we see him do in his in his town and get laughed at for doing. Yeah. And he does the same thing with success. And he's just the only thing that's different is he does it with confidence in himself. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, the part I was talking about though <laughs> Sorry, was <tangent>. um, <laughs> was <laughs> just so I was I was trying to make a uh, what's it called a segue a segue and then I was like, there's no segue there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> power of self belief to ILM <laughs> Industrial Light and Magic does some really cool effects in this. Um, the morphing effects when Willow turns Finn from the goat into all those different animals. Mm-hmm. That was the first use of ILM's morphing effect. They created it for this movie. Oh, I didn't for know that. these sequences. And it's such a beautiful effect that, like, I don't know really how they did that. But it makes so much sense, all the moving. So they, Like, they... all, the, all, the, all the morphs, especially from the tiger into the girl, is just a beautiful switch. What they did is... They looked at all the ways they could make it with existing technology and realized that it wasn't really going to work or it was going to be way too expensive. Yeah. So they designed the morphing technology by literally bringing those animals in and filming them all in the same uh, choreography and then filming her do all the choreography as well. And then with uh, some computer software, blending the different layers of film so that they would work with each other. So like if a tiger moves from one side to the other and then the girl moves and then the goat moves, they'd blend whatever was the outside line. So the girl's shoulder with a tiger with the goat. So it's like the first time where film is actually like combined together, not overlaid. Wow. And the same stuff was used in like so many movies after yeah. this with if, uh, Indiana Jones in some of the other newer Star Wars. It was used in so many of his Whoa. movies. It's insane. This, this whole thing is like, again, why I think this movie doesn't get as much credit as it deserves he used this like these effects in greater effect in all of his more successful films yeah but it wouldn't have happened without this i was trying to wrap my head around it when i was watching it i was like how would they do this because this is not just fading and this is not just like a computer this is not cg um that is really interesting this is one of the first like actual quote like cgi yeah like you know when they actually use that like acronym like in big budget stuff it's a great effect great effect um what do you think about the other effects because you also have the brownies who are like cut out on like screen yeah yeah, that for me i you can obviously they like didn't have the the matching the light Mm -hmm. and I, i can't imagine how it would be shooting film and then being like oh no we didn't light it right but it looks pretty good okay the brownies i have to put a bit of an aside to how I feel about the rest Mm -hmm. because they're done differently and I don't think they're done as well. No. But all the rest of the magic is all hand-painted in every frame. Oh, dude. The one where she catches the egg corn and her hand turns Turns to stone. I was like, that looks so cool. Even the scenes of the willow wand glowing. Yeah. 
Those are all painted frame for frame. Wow. I think that's why it looks so good. It looks so real. It look it feels like, you know, when you see the two-handed dragon in there, I feel like it feels kind of like the thing. It feels it actually could be there. It doesn't feel like it's just a layer that's been thrown on. It's interesting. The two-handed dra- or the two-headed dragon. Um that I was reading this review about it that was released at the time. And the guy was saying that cuz I'm so curious how audiences view effects versus how they've aged now. And that is the only one. I believe that's like stop motion. And that's the only one where the review stopped to point out that that dragon looked fake. Mm. Even though it's the most throwback to like Jason and the Argonauts. Mm. Like it feels like that. It feels such like a stop motion clay, um, that kind of effect. But that was the only one where people were like, that looks a little fake. And I'd agree with that. It like again, the brownies weren't the highest quality, as you said. I I'd say the brownies were the worst effect in the yeah. in the movie. But I'd agree. It's just interesting that they pointed that one out because it looked like such an older effect. Yeah, I mean, that's probably one that probably everyone better. would remember as well. Yeah. Like the brownies or something. Like I kind of vaguely remembered that scene of the two headed dragon, I guess it's 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 a weird creature. I like uh-huh. how they reimagine mm-hmm. fantasy creatures mm-hmm. in this movie. But I didn't remember the brownies at all. No. And so coming back to that as an adult was that was almost like a, a stark surprise of like, oh, these are in here? Not a oh, nice I awakening. About that. No, no. <laughs> Not a, it wasn't a pleasant surprise. No. It wasn't like someone bringing over brownies. <laughs> it was like, what did I just sit on? Oh, no, it's, it's a, a brownie. brownie. <laughs> um, Do you know what I felt these characters were in the, fo- the movie? I think these characters were a jab towards Mary and Pippin's yes, characters. Yes, me too. Which are supposed to be the characters that are like... They're around the whole time. They're there to cut the tension. They are. They have their use or whatnot. And like, you know, they're just sort of part of their like part of the troop to sort of round it out and give you more of like an everyman, more of like a a, a bit of a, a palate cleanser. Yeah. But the big, big difference is Mary and Pippin win us over as useful members of the party before they leave the Shire. Literally, when they save. Uh, Frodo with the Puckleberry Ferry, and he's to jump off the dock. And without that, the ring would be into the Nazgul's hands, and that would be it. The movie would be over. So before we even get the troop in, we already have established Merry and Pippin as valuable members. They're kind of kooky and funny, and you know they have eight meals a day, they're and they're lovable. making jokes and whatnot. But when shit really hits the fan, they're going to be there, and they're going to have your back. They're capable. Exactly. You yeah. don't know what they're capable of, but you know that they're going to try. And the brownies are just sort of this thing. There's this chaotic sort of... They, Energy. they, they don't... laugh like gremlins. Oh, gosh. They're they're not as useful as uh, borrowers. No. But they, what I think makes them kind of a deterrent, is that they only cut back to them, like they're on their own separate movie. They never really affect the story, mm-hmm. which is your big point of why Mary and Pippin are so lovable. You're right. But they cut back to them, like, and a great point is the carriage chase is such a fun set piece. And you're like, who doesn't love a, a, a wagon chase? Mm-hmm. Who doesn't love it? They keep cutting back to these two guys, which look like they're on a green screen, um, who are having their own storyline. And it slows it down so much. And whenever they cut back to, I think it's, um, yeah, the actors are Kevin Pollack, who is like pretty big now. <laughs> He's really big now. <laughs> um, and then who's the other guy? Uh I have them under what age the worst for me yeah. from the, from this movie. 
because it was one of those ones that like as you said they had the little subplot in the chase scene but they had that throughout the whole movie and they were all done like you know when the troops were turned back into people instead of pigs and then they jump out from under the helmet like that that scene is there for them throughout the entire movie and it's a whole plot i feel feel like we just don't need yeah kevin pollock and rick overton and i think they're just like stand-up comedians at the time or like improv and it feels yeah like improv like they're both doing weird french accents yeah and they don't really drive the plot forward you just kind of cut back to them and it kind of kills the momentum of the movie um they were something that when i first saw the nod to gulliver's travels i was like i like this partly because you know this is all supposed to be the little guy taking it down but you're also playing with the fact that in this world he's not like the littlest guy and like yeah. i kind of like that concept they didn't need to stay in it throughout that's the thing when i saw one of them riding a hawk mm-hmm. carrying the baby i was like oh i've never realized that i've always wanted to see the ranger character the guy who's like hunting them and who will like inevitably track them down and they have a huge battle with be a uh, a borrower <laughs> and i was like that was so much fun if you give like like a guy on a hawk and like he's not huge he's very little and i was like that would be so much fun and then you're like oh never mind this is not what i want but i was like that would be a really cool character yeah i've got an interesting thing with this what do you think they could add to make the brownies work the only thing that can come off the top of my head is we need to have some evil brownies. They need to have a force that they can take on that's their same sort of level and impacts the story in the same way. Because if we were to have that, then we could show that there's war going on from the littlest, tiniest blade of grass all the way up to the big like monsters. That's a really fun idea. But they have they have no counterpart. Yeah. And so much of the magic in this movie is not like fantasy um like orcs Mm. or or uh or like elves with with high years it's just size difference yeah and that's so much of what the magic and and like otherworldly creatures are is just you've got little medium big and then like dragons who are huge i do think it it could have also been cool for them to do like actually lean into the gulliver's travel and have giants yeah no i i thought there was going to be a giant right yeah. It's one of those things where it's just like, well, like, or what they could have done as well is they could have had the brownies be the ones that are, you know, the force of good and the giants be the force of evil. And it's just one of those things where, like, you know, they have to have the brownies outthink the giant. Like, there's yeah. just, there's, there's things the brownies could have done and they're just there as, as laughs the yeah. whole way. They're and you can there tell they were like, as band-aids. they're the either like CP3O yeah. and, um, R2-D2. and RTD2, but like RTD2. They both have purposes in the plot. And right off the top, they introduce those characters as like, oh, this character is the one that like has the plans to take, to, like the information you need to take down the bad guy. Like right off the top, just like Mary and Pippin, they both prove And themselves. also texture. Yeah. You have you have the straight man and the silly man. With this one, it's like you have two, two gremlins who just drank a bunch of Red Bull right beside each other. That you couldn't guess at their names. And the only thing you really remember no. about them is the one joke where the leader points in a direction and then the follower points in the real direction yeah it's like that's yeah it's that's, it's it's not fun it's not like they don't even have a good relationship no no they're they they do not have like again we neither of us could guess at their names there's there's nothing there yeah um all right the next one i want to talk about was yeah when the queen turns all the rival army into pigs this is still one of my like this is something i really feel like it's underutilized i talked about this in the beginning as one of the things i remembered and it 
it held up exactly as I remembered it. Did exactly it scare as I you as, as as a kid? This read to it me did. like the scene that traumatizes. But, but I, I I know why it scared me as well because it wasn't like the imagery of them turning from person to pig. Like yeah, sure, that's kind of scary. But what was really scary was realizing that like you've spent I don't know at this point we're like an hour and a bit into the movie and you spent all this time amassing all these forces to take down this person and she's able to stop them all like that. Yeah. She's able to stop them with a flick of her wrist and while laughing. And when you realize how hopeless it actually is, that's when it's scary. Because you don't the movies like this usually will try to underline how hopeless it is right off the top, and then you're slowly sort of building to that. This you don't realize how fucked you are. Yeah. Until the moment of everyone being screwed. That was uh, it's such a fun twist because you're like, oh my god, this. She's so powerful. So and powerful. I think they like play their hand a little too early because then you just have them all down there. Like the army sets up camp about six feet from the evil fortress's walls. And then that happens. But then they all get turned back. And then Willow is like, hey, we're going to, uh, you know, back to the Star Wars. I used to shoot swamp rats mm-hmm. in my whatever it is. Um and this time Willow is is like, I used to kill gophers with this system. And then they like do their big plan of hiding under all the tents. <laughs> like no one's watching them. No one. That's the thing where I, I was like, there must have been some blocking hmm. in the script that didn't translate to the movie. Cause I was like, this plan makes no sense. How does the how does the plan of like getting three horsemen to ride out so that you can storm into the the like open door how does that work with gophers what is that analogy i think it's supposed to be like you can get all the gophers if you if find you out where hide. one of them is coming from oh they didn't put that in at all yeah um i what i actually think is i i do agree that something's wrong with this scene yeah and i think i know what it is what what <laughs> <laughs> so this whole time she's looking for this baby and yes. then she gets the baby yes but it just this is the problem. We don't know how long it takes for her to do the thing. If if she was like, it's going to take me a full 24 hours to do this ritual to make sure this baby, you know, to basically kill this baby, then we would at least have some justification why no one's watching the outside of the walls. Yeah. Because everyone in the castle is trying to work together to get this one, you know, horrible ritual done. But instead... They're all trying to kill this baby. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Guys, come on. We all got to tune together as a kingdom to kill this baby. But instead, we have Willow, like, you know, hatch this plan, do all this thing. It takes a whole like night and day, yeah. and like there's all these, just all this stuff going on, and all these steps leading towards it. But our characters and the audience don't know if they actually have the time to do that. Because if you're in the camp, you might be like, "Well, is the queen just going to stab this baby in the chest in two seconds, it's and that's going to be it?" Well, we needed, we needed, a, we need a countdown. We needed the hourglass yeah. flip or the sun. That's going another great down. one. That's another great and one. And being Will. like, it has to be night. Yeah. That's it's magic. It has to be the night. And, or and like that like, storm has to arrive because we need the light. Something like that. We needed we needed a timeline. Because then yeah. if we had that timeline, it would make way more sense that all the bad people <laughs> I was gonna stick with bad people. All the bad people <laughs> don't recognize the that all the good people are being transformed not into yeah. you know, from pigs to people I, and are laying the trap. Like we need a timeline because the whole way I'm like, why is Willow still even trying? Like everything's lost, everything's out, the queen has the baby. Like, what? That was the big thing I felt was missing. It it lost its dynamic tension because you didn't know the end line. Yeah. No, I, I definitely believe that. And there's something that I that, that I love in movies is when they're like 
okay, like we're adding countdown clock right now. Just so you know, there is going to be a ticking clock so that you know you have to get to the third floor to get that baby. And it doesn't have to be... Like it doesn't literally have to be a ticking clock in no, it, in it could be Star Wars. You want. No. The ticking clock is this thing's recharging, and if we don't get it done in time, the planet's going to be destroyed. It's a great ticking you clock. Know? We all know that the thing is happening. I think, yeah. I think I don't know, don't know how long it's going to take, but like if we really wanted to draw down on that, you could easily be like it's this percent charged. Yeah, that's that's a great clock. That's one that you don't need to have. Like you can really manipulate well within the story, and you can really manipulate. And this story just doesn't have it. So like you know, if you could destroy the Death Star at any time. They did. We wouldn't have to have all the rebels go and have like one big crazy flash of war yeah. to make it work because they could just do it at a different time when it's better planned. They there needs to be a clock, and it's not there. And I think this movie really suffers from it. It's a good. It's also just a good. Uh, any filmmakers out there, that's a really good tip or or good uh, good point to create tension. Um, fun fact with all those pigs. Uh, they had to keep them from mating. That's hilarious. Because there's so many pigs that are all humping each other. That's hilarious. That they all had to keep throwing buckets of cold water on them. That's hilarious. Um, so if you watch that scene... They're just all these horny pigs. Yeah. Oh, oh, also jumping back really quick, they really easily could have established the ticking clock and gotten all the information for that uh, very easily to all the good guys because at that point in time, uh, Sorsha has, has switched sides. Yeah. So, no, no, totally. Like, it's... It's all the, all the bits are there, and yeah. this is not utilized. She could be like, "Hey, here's exposition, and it's not exposition. You need to know it." Yeah, and, or hey, here's another way that the castle won't see us because X, Y. You know, like she is the the key, mm-hmm. and they just don't use her. No, yeah, I felt like a lot was edited out. Mm-hmm. So uh, they 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 ram the castle, and then we get to my favorite part of the, of of this 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 movie. You have the two kind of big sorcerers battling oh re- really quick just yeah i love the yeah, beat of her transforming from an animal to a person and realizing how long it's been because she still thinks she's a young woman and then realizes she's not i love that when, that's one of those when, like oh when we're past it but god you're gonna be thinking about it for a while when man Markin's like what do you even look like she's like i'm young and beautiful yeah you're like oh, then, that voice <laughs> your voice feels different yeah. are you trying to catfish me here <laughs> I know you got turned into a into animals, but are you gonna turn into catfish? <laughs> um, um, I uh, yeah, I just that that is a really great detail. Um, Willow, uh, so Queen Bavborda, Bavmorta fighting <laughs> Finn Razil. The battle's over. Uh, Finn is down. It looks like uh, the queen is going to win, and then Willow takes the baby. And when she's like, get over here right now. And you're like, he's like, no. And she's like, get over here right now. <laughs> Bring me that baby. <laughs> I really like that. I love when, whenever movies do that. And you're like, she thinks she has so much power over this guy that he's going to listen to her just because of who she is. And he's like, and then did you remember that twist of him pulling out his old magician trick? I forgot about it. I, I With this movie, it was such a long time. I literally couldn't remember what happened after they were turned into pigs so i was really excited because I, yeah. like, I have no idea um but again him just saying no that harps back to the it's uh furthering of the same scene when he refuses to give the baby to mad mortigan yeah it's him like you know doing what all the like a logical character and every man character would be like 
no, you don't want to die. You know, you don't want to be turned into a pig. You should give her that baby. And this person's like, no, I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to do what I know is right, even if it kills me. And I have so much confidence in my trick that I can pull this off. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to work with what I got. Yeah, right? He's, I love He's not going to use any of the tools that it he's... It makes no sense, but I love no, it. it does. He's not going to use any of the tools that he's been trying to gather on his quest. Yeah. He's going to use the same tools he's already had yes. with the new experiences of his quest. No, I was going to say the, the actual... No. Like, what is what is in the blanket that's supposed to look like a baby? Mm. Where does it go? It's not like he has a table to hide it under. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> that's... That's fair. But, I mean, it makes total sense from a screenplay, and I love it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they could have blocked that better. <laughs> yeah, just stayed. Where is your closest medicine table? <laughs> <laughs> just He just awkwardly walked behind it. Um, no, I really, really love that twist, and I think it's such a fun little little uh, cheeky move. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I, again, I really like it because I love stories that the character vanquishes the big, like, the big bad. Just from doing what they were doing before. And just with wits. Yeah, or just from doing what they were doing before, just with done from a different way. Yeah. You know? And that's it. This is the story of a character finding confidence in himself. So we get to the ending. Willow returns home. Uh, the baby, I guess, goes to their adopted parents, uh, Val Kilmer, who's no longer mad, and uh, Joanne Sorsha who is no longer bad. Yeah. Um, and and they, I guess they've just been elected king and queen now for some weird reason. Um, and uh, and Willow returns home. Now, you... you Again, would have made way more sense if, you know, Mad Morgan had decided to lead all the troops and be the yeah. the head of the army well, for even if, to suddenly take over you if, know, with Sorsha. It would have made more sense. If, but. The, if they showed Sorsha, like Sorsha's dad was the king, mm-hmm. so she's a princess. If they just showed them being brought back, that would make a lot more sense. If they even introduce that storyline, yeah. it's nowhere in the movie. Yeah. Um. All right. Um. What do you think about the ending? When he comes back? Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's what you want in a hero's journey. It's just Buddy coming back. Basically the same person, but with just a different outlook from the experiences that he has been put through. And now, with just a different outlook, he can accomplish things easily that he had struggled to accomplish before. In the beginning, he knew the right finger of power to choose. He just didn't have the confidence in himself to do so. And the end, he will choose it right. What is something about this film that you can actually really appreciate now as an adult that you couldn't as a kid? Because for me, it's the score. Mm. It's actually a really beautiful score. And it has, first of all, you have this really beautiful kind of light um, melody for Willow. And then you do get the kind of like the experiences of Indiana Jones, where you have this kind of whimsical adventure riff. And then you even have some of the romantic moments where they just put, it sounds like they just put the Han and Leia score over the romantic moments. And it really is a great score where it's almost being like the highlights of all three of those scores while still being original. They even used it in like three different trailers. They love the score so much. Well, that's one thing I got to harp back on. The score isn't original. The score, uh, the main guy who did the score, he sampled works from many, mm. many other pieces. So the pieces you're hearing and like 
are probably smaller pieces of oh, more known interesting. Work. So he, you know, he mixed them all together and he did do the score and it isn't a unique thing. Yeah. But most of the highlights are, have been sampled from something else. Which is very similar to Willow overall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great way of putting it. That's really, really interesting. <laughs> That's a good excuse to steal. <laughs> um, I'm just going to type in uh, score. I think what I can probably appreciate more now as an adult James is... Horn did the score. Hmm. All right, yeah? Is Horner. how they actually pulled off some of the facts. Yes. Because, like, knowing that they'd have to repaint every scene, like, literally every frame, sorry, not every scene, literally every frame they have to paint in the effects or do that perfectly, Yeah. knowing the labor intensity of that, I can respect it a lot more. So wild. And, like, when I see something that really sells and I really like, I'm like, you did it. And you did it when no one else was doing it. You did it with brand new technology. And you did it when a lot of people said it wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And that's something I can really, like, you swung for the fences on something you thought was going to work. And it did. You know, it might not have been perfect, but, like, you created something that you then used in so many other movies in your future. So, as a filmmaker, to be able to, like, it's such a, like, it's almost like a fairy tale for me. To be, like, working on a project where you develop something new that you can then use on your future projects. I think this movie really affected cinema in ways that we don't give it credit for. Interesting. What do you think the, uh, like, how do you think this movie's aged? Okay. So this is a bit of a hard one because I think for people who were already viewers, yeah, like me, or other people who already know and liked this movie, it's aged really well. And I think if you weren't, it's probably aged worse because since Willow came out, we've had a lot more fantasy movies come out with a lot more of sort of the basic tropes. And we've seen some of the ones that it's pulling on, you know, like after it came out, Lord of the Rings came out. So this movie pre-Lord of the Rings would be so much better because you would have had to have read the books to do this straight comparison. I believe they had the animated Hobbit before this. Yeah, it's still not the same. No, it's You know not. what I mean? It's, like, it's not. It, having an animated uh, fantasy compared to a live action yeah. is totally different. And I feel like this movie probably get harsher reviewed because people are so much more comfortable with the fantasy format that they're just going to be like yeah what did this add yes so it's kind of hard because like again it's you're split you're split into people who already know and like it like me who are probably can get more out of it and then people who have never heard of it like basically everyone i'm talking about who probably yeah it'll probably be lukewarm oh this is gonna be a hard movie for me to recommend i've been recommending it fervently but for over 20 years yeah baby <laughs> without revisiting it is that weird when you recommend movies and you're like ah oh, i don't know how that's aged <laughs> um yeah i'd i'd agree i would totally agree i think if you have a like a what's the right word reverence mm. for for this film a nostalgic kind of liking to it i think it's i think it's good um I didn't fully have that. I I, th- I think me and you are kind of similar on, or not similar, but we both saw it at the same age. It was way bigger of a thing in your life than mm-hmm. it was in mine. And when I was watching it, I was like, I know what Fraser's going to like from this. And when I was watching it, I was like, ah, like, I watched this twice. The second time was hard. Yeah. The first time, I was like, I, I was just kind of happy and going with it and being like, what a weird world. But the second time, I I could kind of look deeper into characters, and a bunch of it kind of stopped making a lot of sense while also making a little more sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And the more I watched it, the kind of just more bored I got with it. But I will have to say, I think what's aged the best are the effects, Mm -hmm. or some of the effects. 
Um, I think the overall kind of like, I think, I think doing all the, all the newly, newlytons, uh, who the, are the hobbits? No ones. The no ones. No ones. I think doing them all as dwarfs or little people. I think that is awesome, like has aged so coolly mm-hmm. where you're like, oh man, this is awesome. Yeah, I agree. Um, and also just the amount of famous dwarves and little people in the background, you're like, whoa, yeah. like that guy's super famous now. One of the warriors, uh, I forget what his name is. I should have looked looked it up, but he's in like Bad Santa and like yeah, all those. Yeah, I know movies. the guy you're talking about. Yeah, yeah he's like the main warrior. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, I think that's aged great. I think the I think the score is aged well. Um, and I think probably the nerddom over this movie has aged pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has like a cult classic. I think the thing that probably has aged the worst is the humor. The humor fucking sucks. The humor dude. is really bad. It's like, wait, you're not consistent enough for this to really be a fantasy dramedy comedy. Yeah. But you're not sparse enough to this to just be a little bit of humor. It's there, like this weird sort of. There's one joke that really worked. There's two jokes that really worked. Okay, wh- what are the jokes? Both with Mad Mardigan. Okay, this is going to be interesting to see which ones worked for you. And it's funny because they're so cartoonish. Yeah, I think I know. It's the Mad ones. Mardigan when he when you first see him with a sword and you're like he's awesome, and then he like throws the sword up in the air, catches it, and he's like, "You see, I am awesome," and then he falls on his ass. I I, I like that. The yeah. second one <laughs> is when Willow is on the is on the shield sliding down the mountain, and then Mad Mardigan falls off, and then when Willow gets to the bottom. He looks back up, and Mad Mardigan is a literal snowball. <laughs> I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> rolling down. I was like, that feels like something straight out of Pirates of the Caribbean, like something that's yeah. such a fun action-adventure joke that does not work in real life, but it's hilarious. I really love that one. And the other ones is just Willow, like when he first does the spell, and then he shoots himself up into that tree, mm-hmm. and then... <laughs> He's just up there stuck, and then he's like, Mad Modigan, I need help. And it's just cut away, and you go back to I it. love that. That's, like, a really funny joke. Okay, two of those jokes I'm into. <laughs> the The scene with the snowball with Mad Mordigan, this is where I think the movie really struggles, because with the jokes like that, is like, is, oh, this, it's is so this a kid's broad. movie, yeah. or is this an adult movie? And when you're making those jokes, it's like, it's obviously a kid's movie, but then it's like, obviously not. Yeah. So it kind of, like, it needed to double down one way or the other. Like, it needed to choose a humor. It almost felt like... There was a couple different people's humor in this. Yes. And so, you know, like, oh, this is Ron Howard's joke. And this is a George Lucas yes. joke. You know, it's like, it's a Bob it felt like joke. one of them needed to be sort of the through line for the jokes. Yes. Because the jokes were aged really badly. That might be the problem of having an executive producer as the as the voice rather than a director as the voice. That's true. Um, it, that scene, that one, sorry, that snowball thing, I, I had it as a note just because I really wanted to talk about it, <laughs> reminded me so much of uh, the kind of stuff that doesn't work in the new Hobbits movies, a lot of things don't work, but like that reminded me of something totally along the lines of like Legolas jumping between barrels while yeah. they go down the stream. That's the Hobbit though, so that shouldn't even be considered. No. Uh-huh. Um, but but this actually, we just recorded a mini episode earlier on today that you guys should definitely go check out, The Mitchells versus the Machine. That's released after this, baby. Um, but hey, but listen, well, you know, check it out right after. Stay tuned but for a, our Mitchells versus the Machine con. A good point what that one can do which this one is not able to do at all, something like the snowball joke is something that a movie like Mitchell's versus the Machine can pause 
and really mm-hmm. to make a meal of like basically saying like this is like an out of the story sort of like moment in time this is a gift this is the joke this is the thing and they're going to continue on with the good serious story yeah and willow couldn't do that i think that's what they were kind of leaning towards mm-hmm. but it, it was didn't work you know what i mean like with the mitchells versus the machine they could have that like, you could feel them being like we need laughs for this action adventure and then not doing the footwork to make that blend into the plot right with with the mitchells versus the machines they're like oh we're intentionally breaking the fourth wall right now to get a laugh and we're doing it for like way longer than would be acceptable in normal format but that's what we're doing it we're doing it for the laugh and then straight back into the actual content and it works great this one it doesn't do enough of that for it to be a theme throughout yes so whenever they are there it's it's weird legacy all right so i want to talk to you about this with this we should talk about the impending remake yes that is part of the legacy, Fraser. <laughs> um, there's a book series that came out after called The Chronicles of the Show War. I, that can't be right. Shadow War. Um, uh, Shadow Moon. Shadow Moon. Interesting. Um, Which also I thought was funny because it's the name of the character in uh, uh, New Gods. Oh. The, is it called New Gods? American Gods. Yes. Um, it's the main character's first name. I would not put it past Neil Gaiman for reading the Willow books. He's such a dork. Yeah. No, um, actually, I was looking at that, and I was like, yep, this is Neil like, Gaiman definitely. <laughs> Shadow Moon. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, and that one, I believe, follows uh, the baby's kind of life after. Um, and now there is a Disney Plus series, which Ron Howard announced, um, that will be coming in 2022. Warwick Davis is returning. However, it's uncertain if Val Kilmer will return. I don't think he should. Well, yeah, and I, I don't know if he'd be able to after his throat cancer. Oh, yeah. And also, you know, he just couldn't play the role anymore. You Look at him now. Well, he'd be a good uh, spoiled king. I sure, think. sure. I he think if, he, if Mad Mardigan became a king, it, he, it, it, would, it would be good. He wasn't the perfect Mad Mardigan at the top. No. So. Oh, what if they bring back John Cusack? <laughs> um, I, I do think that this uh, story will be better now yeah. uh, because of the technology we have and I think it will be better as a show. Yes. I really think this will be better, like way better as a TV show. I think the mood and the humor will tra- and the magic will translate way better with the extended runtime yeah. than it would in a movie setting. I think a good comparison would be the uh, Dark Crystal series that was just, just released. Perfect which is comparison. a fantastic movie, but it, again, it has that limited world. Mm-hmm. Just, and and it's, it's kind of restrained by the runtime. And I think as a TV show, they could really go into it. And all the things, the great thing about fantasy is... is is the world absolutely and so that's a perfect example yeah and so so it's that show kind of explores it so much better i do think they probably will have willow um as the kind of famed sorcerer it says that he's reprising his titular role yeah so it should be coming back as willow but i do think he should be back as the sage yeah, I can imagine they would. I, I think he's coming back as the character. I was thinking about well, it. Well, no, but you can be the sage and the character. You gradu- That guy dies, and then you can just be him. No, but that doesn't really work as the character as, like, the little everyman going out against the quest. Because at that oh. point in time, Willow is, like, a you know a sage with, you know, like, you couldn't have the old... No, I think he's going to become, like, an Obi-Wan character. I think he says he's coming back as his titular, That's titular what I mean. role. That, that means he's coming back as Willow. Yeah, but Willow as Obi-Wan... Like Willow as has, after at the end of the movie, he's changed archetypes. Mm-hmm, but he's he's uh, grown from from 
from the everyman into the hero. No, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't think that's what this remake is. I think this remake's a straight remake. And I think no, they're doing him as it Willow. It can't be. I think so. No, because that like, sounds bad. I, no, <laughs> I'm pretty sure, man. If it says he's coming back and reprising his titular role, you that means he's coming back as... A plot, like a literal Willow finds a baby remake? Yeah. That sounds bad. Interesting. No, I, I think it's just going to be a straight remake. I don't think so. I think they're going to do a sequel... Like a uh, like what Dark Crystal is. Oh, you're totally right. I'm reading through the Disney Plus and it says confirmed it'll be a sequel series yeah. taking place years after the events Dude, of the original Ron Howard director. I were... thought it was a straight remake. Um, that would be terrible. That it, would actually be bad. I'm, <laughs> I I still have faith it could not be bad. All right, Fraser, is this movie worth revisiting? Yes, I think this movie had more effect on Hollywood and on how the average viewer sort of sees uh, fantasy more so than people would give it credit for. I think this movie probably should be mentioned in film schools as something to watch because it's it's something that I feel like is very underrated and actually does pull off quite a lot. It's not a perfect story, of course. There's a lot of things with it, of course. But I think this story should have more acclamation than what it does because since you know in the last few weeks of watching it and preparing for this podcast literally no one that i've talked to about it knows about it i only know 40 year old nerds who like this movie because they were say 13 Mm -hmm. when it came out yeah and that's kind of who i feel like the audience is yeah i think this i think this is the story that if you have kids you should show them show it to them when they're like Yes. 12. Oh, I, even younger. Even younger, maybe, um, depending on your kids' yeah. stomach for a story. But I, mean, I probably if you got watched some this when kids. I was younger. <laughs> and it, it was really impactful on me, and it, it really did a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is a story that um, has some negatives and has some qualms, but I feel like it just gets touted for those. Yes. And no one else focuses on what it is as a whole. That's very, very true. And I would say, coming into this podcast, I was ready to do exactly that. And you turned me from doing that. I knew I was coming into this. I was like, I love this movie. And I, I was really expecting you to come in not liking it. Yeah. And I was so ready to just like. I mean, I came in. I come to every podcast wanting to feel the love that the guest. Like, all I want to do is just be like, this was your movie. How is it now? <laughs> and and I never want to be like, oh, yeah, here's my thorn. There's your bubble. <laughs> like, I, I never want to do that. And um and so. I came in here being like, I don't want to kind of shit on this movie. But you have pointed out a lot of really great things about this movie. Um, But again, I think this movie is probably better in concept than in execution. It is. I would highly agree with that. Um, Okay. Would you show this to a kid in 2021? I would actually recommend this more fervently towards kids than I would to adults. Nice. I totally agree. Uh, What recent movie have you seen that you would have loved if it came out when you were a kid, Fraser? Okay. So this is going to feel like a cop-out. Is it the Bruce Willis movie, Cop Out? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to choose Mitchell's versus the Machines. Hey. The one we just talked about. Hey, and get it, get with the audience. The one Say we're the just one we're about going... to talk yeah, about. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> that's better, baby. Don't show them behind the curtain. But <laughs> That upcoming show that we have. But the reason I sort of focused on that is because 
I wanted, I really wanted to choose a fantasy. And I just started Googling best fantasy 2021, best fantasy 2020, best fantasy 2019. I just kept going back and going back and going back. And there hasn't been a fantasy that I could like really recommend in quite a while. Yeah. So I had to just go, I had to go with Mitchell's versus the machines because as far as family movies go, I actually can't think of a better one I've seen this year. Like a movie for the whole family would enjoy. It was a movie that was better than I expected it to be. Good for all ages. Yeah, I'm sticking with Mitchell's versus the machines. I would highly agree. That was my, um, I did a preemptive recommendation last episode. Hmm. And my guest also recommended that. Um, so I watched it. I checked it out. Please listen to next week's ep- episode for our full discussion on that. I also, this is something that I was trying to think about where I could add throughout this. Yeah. And I just couldn't. And also there's one more thing I can remind you to talk about. Um, I heard rumors that Lord of the Rings um, was inspired to shoot in New Zealand, partly from seeing this movie. No way. But I can only substantiate that on Reddit links. So I've got no, like, you know, it's just something yeah. that was like, this is cool, but like, they, I have no. They shot like, in so many different lo- locations. They so even went many. to China. Yeah. China was like, you can't shoot here. So they sent like a guerrilla group to go get photos. And I think that's the kind of the the newly town and then um one of the waterfall shots and they kind of just like put that in in the back mm-hmm. uh, a lot of great matte paintings in this yeah one other thing that we were going to talk about is black root doesn't come oh, back yeah. oh here i got a big question for that is black root who do you side with on that willow saying you should never feed it to kids or mad martigan the guy who's mad saying my mother gave it to me all the time do you think it caused mad martigan to go mad no, I didn't think about that. And after you brought that up, I, I actually think that's a pretty good little point. But I actually would probably agree on Mad Morgan here because I think it's early enough in the story that you're still trying to show Willow as this person who wouldn't even want to take a tiny risk, which is, you know, eating like a root, which he thinks is bad, which is actually not bad. Yeah. So I think what they're trying to do is just show you he's a f- the difference in outlooks between Willow and Mad Morgan. He's, he's, he's a worried Willie. Yeah, but I would really have liked to have seen that come back in some way. Yeah, me too. Like, she's crying, and then Willow in, you know, part of the movie Gives has to find yeah. some black root and has to give it to her. And then, like, he realizes that Mad Morgan actually has some wisdom. Yeah. But we don't see that. No. Good point. I like that. That's a good that, That's a good thing to add. Um, okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as always, uh, please rate and review us on it's, apple uh, the content not us please please i can't take it don't review me and him <laughs> don't review my body <laughs> <laughs> uh please rate and review us on apple podcasts uh, if you give us a five-star review we will read your reviews on the podcast so i got two right here the deal is you leave a five-star review i'll read it in cronk voice so here we go all right this is from uh ah, wait i gotta get into it gonna cronk up i thought all right that's where it is all right, it's more David Putty. Um, all right. Noteboom RV writes, uh, Great Conversations, a podcast with great convos, engaging discussions, and a wide variety of movies. Going into my podcast rotation. Five stars. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Noteboom RV. All right, the next one is uh, from Eli Rain. Wait. <clears throat> High five. Yeah, that's where it is. My Spanish pops. My Spanish pops. High five's the word. That's your root word. <laughs> it eh? is. It yeah. is. 
It's Armageddon. It's how I get it. A tangerine. Great, uh, great podcast for movies. I get sucked into each episode. It's like reliving the movies, but with a great commentary on the side. So, five stars. Thanks, Eli Rain. All right. Uh, if you want to have your pod, uh, your review read, you can write anything you want. Doesn't say, even I'm, have I'm to thinking be. I might leave one just to, just to listen into this. It'd be Do hilarious it, to make you say some weird things. You can make me say whatever as long as there's five stars attached to it. Oh, this is danger. Oh, yeah. That's the deal. Uh, it's not me saying it, though. It's crock. <laughs> <laughs> um, as always, uh, please tell a friend about the podcast. If you think they'd enjoy these conversations and reliving their childhood, Tell a friend, give them a gift. And other than that, please uh, follow us on social media at What Will We Watch. And do the gift to yourself, go and watching Willow. Oh, yeah, do that gift. That's a nice gift to give. All right, Fraser, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, you got anything to promote? Nope, uh, just seatbelts and face masks. Stay safe, everybody. I totally agree. Uh, all right, awesome. Have a great week. Enjoy and go watch some movies. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Awesome, guys.